0: Hi, folks. Daniel Mullins here. Thank you so much for supporting Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Before we start with today's episode, I want to invite you to join Ty and myself for a very special event coming up in Raleigh, North Carolina during the 2019 World of Bluegrass hosted by the International Bluegrass Music Association. On Friday, September the 27th, we will be recording a live podcast with special guest Alan Mills. Alan Mills is a beloved member of the bluegrass community, founding member of the legendary bluegrass band, The Lost found, and a founding member of the International Bluegrass Music Association. I know we'll have a ton of fun, we'll laugh, and we'll learn from a real bluegrass legend, and you are invited to join us 10.30 a.m. at the Raleigh Convention Center in Raleigh, North Carolina on Friday, September the 27th. We'll be at the workshop stage and we hope that you'll join us for a live podcast recording as we sit down with bluegrass legend Alan Mills, a 2019 recipient of IBMA's Distinguished Achievement achievement award. That's Friday, September the 27th, 10:30 a.m. Join us for a live podcast recording. And now on to the next episode of Walls of Time. Thank you.
1: Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know. Who's Your Devil offers a variety of services including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at whoesyourdevil.com that's h o o s i e r d e v i l.com. Who's Your Devil. Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Peter Rowan, a former bluegrass boy, has a storied career that includes working alongside Jerry Garcia with the West Coast band Old and in the Way, and a reputation as an innovative and multifaceted solo artist. He and our host Daniel Mullins get deep on this episode of Walls of Time. Listen to this music history lesson from one of Roots Music's most eclectic creators. He talks poetry, the soulful origins of bluegrass, and even some Eastern mysticism. Hear about how the classic bluegrass song Walls of Time was written, and so much more in this field interview with your host Daniel Mullins in a hotel suite in Bellevue, Washington between sets at Wintergrass.
0: Um you're you're kind of a musical chameleon. You you have have done a little bit of everything in all different styles of music. How do you so easily adapt? to whatever genre that you're approaching
2: well mr bill monroe the father of bluegrass music once told me he said pete don't go too far out on the limb there's enough flowers out there already <laughs> and then he said uh if you if you if you can learn my music you can play any kind of music so he had he saw that i was sort of of a, a diverse orientation But he addressed it directly in those sayings. And first, when I was with him, I thought it was like, don't do anything, just follow my command, you know. But he was saying, you know, you have your own star to follow, but learn this. And that's all I was trying to do when I was with him, but we never did any new grass or anything like that. But to me, bluegrass is always new, you know. I mean, just the people in my band have, what they say, we have over 100 years of of musical history <laughs> yeah. combined. Uh, you know, a guy like Blaine Sprouse, who, who was Kenny Baker's protege and played with the Osborne brothers and many people like that, you know. Uh, and, and Jack Lawrence, 27 years with, Bill, with uh, Doc Watson. Jack Lawrence playing guitar with me. I mean, just that just puts me in a place of happy, yeah. you know. So any kind of music, and Jack is so, you know... You know, groovy on guitar that, you know, he can bring in little Beatles and, you know, and so without, you know, making too much showbiz out of it, we're still playing bluegrass, but letting, letting the years of influence creep in there, you know. You mentioned your time
0: with Munro, and, and there's a very uh, famous conversation that you had with Mr. Munro about the ancient tones. Yeah. Um, and how did uh, that conversation I- inspire the song Walls of Time?
2: Well, when I went with Bill, <clears throat> uh, two people had already spent a lot of time with him. One was the first bluegrass band that I was ever hired in was uh, with Bill Keith and Jim Rooney. And Bill Keith had been with Monroe a long time and, well, uh, you know, a year and a half, two years, about the average bluegrass boy time. And... uh he told me a lot about Bill, I mean, that he was very secretive, he didn't like to talk, but it was a different, different uh, combination of people that were traveling with Bill at that time, including his, uh, well, you'd have to say mistress, Bessie Lima Maudlin, and his daughter from his marriage, Melissa Monroe. So you'd have, it was, you know, in a station wagon. He didn't have a bus, and so they drove across the country to L.A. in a station wagon, you know, with with uh, Clarence Ashley. I don't think Doc was on that trip, uh, but Ralph Rinsler was Bill's manager at the time, trying to bring him out of, well, you could say a kind of obscurity yeah. to the young audience. Uh, he was, of course, had been on the Grand Ole Opry already for 20 years, but the the younger audience that were coming to folk festivals didn't really know about Bill. And so Ralph Rinsler, who worked for the uh, Newport Folk Festival, the Smithsonian life, folk life. He, he created Smithsonian folk life by starting festivals in DC that would have like Cajun people and Caribbean people, bluegrass fit into it, but it was much bigger picture of folk, folk roots, uh, because Ralph was of that generation where all the originators were still alive. And I caught the end of that. But it was, seemed like forever. You know, I was only in my 20s. Um, and then uh, when Carter Stanley passed, you know, uh, there was sort of the end of an era, I think. He was the first of of the old school to, to pass on. Uh, but by then, Ralph had me booking Bill. Into colleges, Ralph Runs are kind of, it's very, uh, it's a two-edged sword to become Bill Monroe's manager. (laughs) You know, because you can do right, but you can do wrong. (laughs) And, uh, but I mean, as a 23-year-old kid, it's kind of a lot of a pressure because we had to drive the bus. And uh, played the shows. And uh, I was on the phone with with folks. And people got my number. And I was inexperienced. And people would want to talk for hours about Bill Monroe. And I'd be like, well, yeah. You know. (laughs) But uh, Ralph went on to work more exclusively with Doc Watson. And so Ralph told me stories about Bill before I joined him. You know, I was an intrigued young musician from the northeast listening to those tapes bill bill keith had a lot of tapes that they, he taped the shows his tape collection would be very valuable uh as would Tex Logan's. we were trying to digitalize a bunch of Tex Logan house concerts that has bill wow yeah there's a version of a uh, midnight on the stormy deep with just me and bill oh wow and i didn't realize what kind of guitar uh style i was playing at the time it's very rootsy i mean it's in in the bluegrass you know kind of lick on the guitar it's a bass note and strum but i had picked up on bill's swing in his playing. so there it's not just like doong chang it's like chang, chang dung chang midnight on you know there's sort of a a walking bass feel under those slow songs you know even though they're played straight a lot uh, and Bill's mandolin on that house party tape, uh, from Texas, Tex Logan's, um, you hear that mandolin as we will all remember it. But if you only hear the record studio recordings, it's all EQ'd. Everything's EQ'd to fit, fit electronically into tape at the time. Uh, maybe beginning of digital, maybe, uh, my last days on earth, uh, Era the uh, don't I don't think they had digital yet because at that time tape was still the the medium. In the uh, what was that the eighties nineteen eighties, so uh, but but Ralph uh, you know hearing all the folklore ab- about Bill Monroe from Ralph Rinsler kind of prepared me, and helped me orient my own you know I'm from the countryside and and it helped me orient my own um, feelings as a person living you know seeing nature every day you know and the old farm no it wasn't a working farm anymore but it was when my granddad and everybody my dad was growing up and everything and there's still a a corral and the stables and you know and i'd wander around down there and you know just sort of you know a lot of bluegrass music is lonesome it's about abandoned places abandoned homes you know the when the People left the country to go to work in the city. That's a big theme. So I was sort of, had that little bit of a lonesome feeling, and I was just barely out of my adolescence. So, you know, it was an emotional state. And uh, when I got with Bill, I I, I don't think a word was spoken for the first two weeks of of us touring. We'd go up to Ohio, up to Bean Blossom, and here and there. And I was just getting into Bill's rhythm, you know, and... uh, The first night I played on the Grand Ole Opry, uh, he he assigned me a tune. I washed my hands in muddy water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he assigned me that tune. And I should have kept it as my solo piece because it's a great one, but I was like, I never did what my daddy told me. I felt so guilty singing that. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, but he was right on again. Bill was right on. That was what I had to meet up with was my own conflict of... uh, You know somebody who was expected to finish college, and uh, I don't know. My dad just wanted me to be uh, in the diplomatic world. You know that he said that's where you might make you can make a difference. So music for me has sort of been diplomacy too, and has led me to interact with different cultural, you know, uh, musical structures. But back to Bill Monroe, having been uh, given a, a preparatory course in. Bill, you know, I knew all about the the gravestone, the graveyards and why memories of mother and dad, what those words meant. So I had a feeling for Bill's, uh, songwriting. Really? He's just a, he's a songwriter. And, uh, one of the first after Hank Williams, well, I, even before Hank Williams, Hank was the fifties, Bill was the forties. He was, Bill was writing his own songs. Blue Moon of Kentucky was a huge hit, um. And many of the others. Um, we did one last night, the first Whippoorwill, that is just, I think, Monroe poetry. Had, you know, it's like analogies to nature. So I always looked at Bill as a nature poet, like a, it's a kind of a stretch, but in the seventh century in China, all these people that were official, you know, you tried to find an official position uh, in society as maybe a a clerk to a, you know, Lawyer, or become a lawyer, or a courtier to the emperor yourself, but all these guys were poets. A lot of them were poets. Tufu and Lipo were these two nature poets that have come down to us as the the biggest names in that tradition. But if you read their stuff and then you look at First Whippoorwill, it's it's the same music, you know, yeah, same spirit. Yeah. It it is, you know. So I've always drawn those conclusions, and having been educated in, uh, you know, in in romantic literature that was pretty much the focus of reading, you know, Byron and Keats and uh, and then into the romantic Emily Bronte and people like that, I had a literary uh, stage set in my mind. And here I was working with Bill Monroe, and it wasn't like, oh, this equals that. It was more like, this is that world, you know. And a lot of bluegrass music is from the 1890s. You know, the old melodies like... Uh, you know, Roan County Prisoner and stuff, these are all melodies. Funny enough, a lot of them come from uh, Germany. Really? Yeah, because that the classical music of Germany was played in the music halls as, as uh, dance numbers and music hall numbers. You know, most orchestras, you know, in those days they were orchestras, could play, uh, you know, what, Schubert and the different waltzes and things from Germany. And uh, I, I heard that Midnight on the Stormy Deep is an old... Uh, uh, German melody, which means, which means it's an old Celtic melody, yeah. because that that was the the Celtic Empire was was Germany in the in the central highlands of Europe, um, fertile fertile highlands, yeah, and then the Irish thing is all in there, so you know, to be to be working in that context was very different, you know. As I said, we didn't speak for a couple of weeks; just drove around and. And you just adapted to Bill's thing, you know. When you heard those first notes on the mandolin, you knew that you had to have been in tune already. And he was asking you, "Is this, you know?" Uh, he wasn't saying tune to me. He was saying, "Where's the? Where are these notes?" The, as a guitar man, you had to have the note to be in tune. And uh, and he tuned to us, and then you'd slow, just adjust to his his tuning, you know, on the mandolin a little bit, you know, until it just felt just right. Uh, I'm thinking backstage at the Grand Ole Opry how, you know, we wouldn't rehearse anything necessarily. We would just run through. Once Bill was in tune, you know, he'd he'd launch into something, you know, and and it might be what we were going to play that night or it might be just something else. Plus, depending on the fiddlers, We'd be playing a lot of fiddle tunes in the dressing room back there. So it was an atmosphere. And at one night, we were driving in the bus, and uh, and uh, I could hear Bill playing mandolin. I was driving, and you could hear Bill in the back, in the sitting area, playing some bluesy kind of stuff. It was like midnight or one in the morning. And he was up, and he was doing that. Bill Monroe moment you know by himself you know and everybody pretty much left him alone because it seemed like he was into an introspective state and that's how music I inherited that and we all have uh when you pick up your instrument you you delve into your emotional world and uh so I I just remember we we changed I think James Monroe got in the seat we had a change on the fly You know, get to the top of a hill, throw it in neutral, and I'd jump out of the driver's seat, and the next driver would (laughs) hop in and double-clutch it back to, you know, the highest gear. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) No (laughs) brakes. No net. (laughs) That's living on the edge. (laughs) (laughs) So I wandered back into the back, and I sat there, and I mean, whenever... See, I was paying attention all the time because of my... Well, I had been trained. I'd been, you know, uh, I'd been tested you know, on what these literary uh, you know, poetics were all about. And uh so I, I I was Bill I I adopted Bill Monroe as my teacher, basically, without anything formal. It was when you worked with him, you could get away with doing the basics. But if if you really wanted to understand what he was all about, at some point, you know, you weren't questioning his anything about him except as where does that come from? And that's what I asked him. You know, I said, where do those notes come from? Where does that music come from? Uh, and, you know, he most people didn't ask him anything because they respected his privacy. But late at night, one in the morning, in the darkened bus with no running lights, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and he said, he said, uh, "He said you've got to follow the keening tones. Now the keening is is an Irish thing that people keen at a funeral. You know, uh, you know they it's kind of a wailing, but they do it for hours, keening, and the, so he talked about the keening tones, you know, and that was like, wow, you know." And he said, uh, he said, uh, th- there's a lot in bluegrass that brings out the ancient tones. That's what it was. And and as I say, when you when you hear his solo mandolin on a non-studio recording, yes, there's something very uncanny going on. The rattlesnake rattles are in there rattling, and the overtones are so incredibly rich. But you don't get it on the recordings because it's all been, you know, electronically mashed up together. Yeah, it's to... all compressed. Compressed. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, to sit there and listen to him at, at night, you're listening to what he's listening to. Because he, he, he took the mandolin like a like a, like a a consort, like a companion, and uh, stroked it and, and whispered the notes from it. And then he'd sing a little bit with it. You know, he was very, very involved in his relationship to his instrument. And I think that's where he was able to, uh, you know, mine the the vastness of his emotional life that in society he kept hidden, you know. And uh, most of the time he played his cards pretty close to his chest. But I'm happy to say that he opened up to me, you know, in the ancient tones that became the byword. So soon after that, uh, we had the... Uh, the moment where the Bluegrass Breakdown bus, well, the bus we call the Bluegrass Breakdown, actually that was Neil Rosenberg's title. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, you know, might have been that same night or in that period when I was first with Bill, uh, the bus broke down in Kentucky. And we were in a little place off the side of the road, and there was a canyon below us called Horse Caves. Horse Caves, Kentucky, Canyon. And I was standing outside under a tree, you know, and it was just sunrise and it was spring. It was April. So I think it was the first year I was with Bill. We, you know, I was with him from 63, but by 60, I mean, but that was like with him and then back home and then with him and, you know, it, I'd play with him. and then, But my debut in the Opry was October of 63. Mm, yeah. And then by 60, it, it, so in some instances, I'm only officially a bluegrass boy in the touring season of 64. And that was, I believe, our first uh, actual tour because Bill didn't go out much during the winter. and But we went a lot of places after that. We went to Europe and we went to England, you know, we went to the West Coast and stuff. But that spring, I'll just never forget the freshness of that feeling it's like april and i'm standing it's our first run up the country to bean blossom maybe on a sunday after playing the opry oh, we played the opry all the time yeah yeah so we played every week and um uh, i was standing outside watch, watching basically as i say the sunrise over the mountains of uh, the kentucky to the east and uh and horse caves down below me you know and and that uh, still down there it's still uh it's still the the still the mists of morning come you know it was just a setting and bill walked up to me he got off the bus and he came up to me and he said listen to listen to this and don't forget it <laughs> and then i thought you know what does that mean <laughs> yeah. um, am i the secretary now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and he sang you know he sang these lines the wind is blowing across the mountains and down o'er the valley way below. Ta 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 da da ta Which is a variation on many of his melodies, but it has uniqueness, little turns that are completely that song. And it was like, Okay, don't forget that and baby I wasn't gonna forget it. <laughs> <laughs> And so I mean to, that was the ancient tones come alive, you know. And so over the next several months and until the Newport Folk Festival in July and the first Tex Logan House party that I attended of that year, you know, it was like a wave, of momentum of uh, activity. You know, winters down in Tennessee, agricultural, everything's sleeping, right? You know, in the springtime suddenly here's this melody and they have no title. So I wrote the, most of the rest of the song. It was like, I thought he was saying, remember this and and take it, you know, but that's not how he considered it. When you worked for Bill Monroe in those days, you worked on the farm, you drove the bus and he was like the, he was like the the boss man. If you happened to write a little something and he wrote a song from it, that it was your contribution, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I mean, I asked Vassar about, it. I said, what did, why did you feel about Bill taking some of your melodic ideas and making f- his fiddle tunes out of them, you know, his instrumentals. And Vassar, you know, a gentleman to the highest degree, just said, Pete, for me it was just an honor, you know. So I guess it wasn't quite an honorable. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I was into the, we, we had come to, into the era of sharing more. You know, a guy like Bill Monroe had to like, he was embattled for t- until the his last week of his life he would tell me the same story you know i could take all the bluegrass boys on i could i i could uh you know they and they couldn't drag me down i said what he said he had wrestling matches with the band he said you know it was like he challenged the band to 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 pull him down he said i would throw them off like hound dogs off a bear and he kept telling me this story and even Even in his 80s, he was telling me the same story. And I think that that was part of the ancient tones thing is that where people got the idea that Monroe was this sort of steely-willed, you know, sort of self-referential person all the time. I mean, I remember when I was his so-called manager uh, going to the Wilburn Brothers, to see if they would uh, book Bill some dates. I mean, it was the first job as a booking agent, uh, a manager, find a booking agent. And Bill had no booking agent. So I ended up doing that too. But I remember talking to Teddy and Doyle Wilbur, and I said, well, would you be able to book some dates? And they did. But they kind of chuckled, and they said, you know, Pete, Bill Monroe, he's he's his own man. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah, And they put us on some shows with Hank Williams Jr. Loretta Lynn. Up through Ohio, in fact. So it was like that. Context was completely different at the point. That point, Hank Williams Jr. was playing piano, and and Loretta Lynn was the star of the show, and we were on it as Bill on the Bluegrass Boys. But that ancient tone idea kind of came together that morning, and uh, and so I I based the song on uh, two things. One. Uh, a little bit of the ideas of memories and mother and dad that are, our, our names are carved upon the tombstone in memories of mother and dad it's uh, there's there's a little lonesome graveyard on the tombstones plural it did say on mothers gone but not forgotten on dads we'll meet again someday so i took the idea that both names were written on this one grave here lies this, this lovers these partners and so yeah, I, I I took it from, you know, the wind is blowing across the mountains and or the valley down below, and I I put, it sweeps. So now that's from sweep. See that my grave is swept clean. That's where that comes from. It sweeps the grave of my darling. When I die, that's where I want to go because that was my interpretation of the, the well, several things. One is you know, love beyond death. Uh, and this transcendent idea that love never really dies, that it, there's a value to it. It exists as a force, you know, and that's the way I felt about it. Uh, and when I die, that's where I want to go. Lord, send the angels for my darling, you know. And we, so we we worked that out over about three months, had no title for it. And I think it was David Grisman who said, uh, you know, I hear her through the walls of time I think David is the one who said, you know, why not not call it The Walls of Time? (laughs) And it was like, because that's really what it's all about, is the walls of time. But I'll tell you another thing that's interesting. You know, I had read Emily Bronte's book. uh, What's the one that takes place up in the Yorkshire Dales, where these two lovers, she dies, and Heathcliff, who is a composite of like you know a country self-willed country outcast a little bit but per, owner of property lives in a big old haunted house on the hill whereas his 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 his, his love you know uh, he never really says how consummated their relationship was but in the, the Victorian era, when it was written, it, it, it was all innuendo, you know. You know, you, it wasn't Lady Chatterley's lover, uh, but it, you know, at a certain point, Heathcliff uh, goes to her grave and digs up the grave and lays down on the casket. It, and it's the mo- its the wrenching part of the Victorian, you know, excess of passion during a, during a very controlled era. So I know that that influenced or gave me the freedom to think of the walls of time as like, Lord, send the angels uh, for my darling, take her to that home on high. I'll wait my time out here on earth, love, and come to you when I die. It It never gets explicit about... A guy crawling in the grave. But, yeah, <laughs> but but the idea is there. The same sort of passions implied. Absolutely, it's a, it's about passion. Yeah, yeah.
3: women love men who care about their hair and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care Hi, I'm Santana Bell and let me tell you Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's Trust me, I'm his girlfriend but Samson's has made a world of difference It holds all day Even after a day of riding roller coasters his hair still looked great I couldn't believe it But even with the all day hold I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy But the best part is the smell It's not over. but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. And now back to Walls of Time.
0: How did learning about these ancient tones from Monroe impact um the music you would rec- do later whether it's with um Sea Train or Earth Opera? Um how how did you take those ancient tones with you into other types of music?
2: Oh, there were a lot of people who'd say I had abandoned them. <clears throat> but um uh, I wrote a song with Earth Opera called I called it It's Love. It's the same melody as the House of New Orleans that Bill was played, and we were trying to write a song about it. Well, I wrote the words to it finally. You know, the deep. Oh no, it's the it's the melody, it's the words to My Last Days on Earth. But at the time, it was like I thought, this oh, what a great melody! Write some words to that. So I wrote some words to My Last Days on Earth, but it's the same melody actually as the House of New Orleans. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So the words are, the deepest dark of silent sound. No home had I below. Ta da 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 da. Me now? Oh yeah. You know, the wings of death or me now you know but the only thing that i ever learned was love it's love it's love strangely enough those lyrics are exactly what that song is really about what he didn't have a title for it later on he recorded it as my last days on earth and these are the perfect words yeah for, <laughs> absolutely for that. you see so that's how i work is intuitively i have just found over time that it's the, one of Allen Ginsberg's teachers referred to as first thought, best thought. It comes from a Tibetan uh, lama, actually, Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche. First thought, best thought, which is his advice to Allen. Because Allen's like, well, I, the sentence structure, and he just said, first thought, best thought. And so that became a a, a byword for, Allen, who was really the last of the beat poets, you know, that was ha- getting any kind of recognition. And so his work became more succinct, more zen-like, you know. And when you think about what's bluegrass, it's just a distillation of poetry, you know. It's the simpleness, distinct simpleness of it with a transcendent feel, but the words can be about suffering. And uh, I'll just never forget a few years ago in, in in Missouri, I came into the airport late, you know, and, you know, it's a summertime and the bugs flying around and it's like another disorienting travel experience. And But the lady who took me out to get the rent-a-car was a black lady. She had a big briefcase under her seat. I said, and she's, you know, I said, what's what's in the briefcase? She says, oh, I'm writing a book. And she, she was moonlighting as a, uh, you know, driver at the airport taking people to the parking lots. I said, really, what's it's about?" it like, what like to be a woman these days in the world? And I said, seriously. And she said, and what do you do? I said, I play bluegrass music. And she goes, bluegrass music? That is the most uplifting music in the world. And that was a huge lesson to me, that it's not all about trying to play bluegrass music. It's about understanding that what you're giving to the audience is something else. So it, it helped me kind of resolve the dualism in my own mind about, well, is this bluegrass or is that not bluegrass? Is this an ancient tone? No. Or is that an ancient tone? And, you know, music musically, fundamentally, there are these cycles of chord changes and rhythmic structures that are like mathematics. And um, so when I play these other kinds of music, you know, other people in those groups were only on a certain level of understanding so it was difficult i was i was trying to get out on the limb and and where the flowers were but you know these these were strictures like c train was ruled by you know a kind of russian classical music structure cuz that's where the band leader came from andy Kohlberg. you know and richard green was a classical violinist so You know, although he had been in the Bluegrass Boys with me, the highest moments in C-Train as far as crowd response were, you know, Orange Blossom Special. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and at a certain point in Bluegrass, you go, God, we're not going to play that, are we? (laughs) Yeah. But yet, you know, Ralph to the very end, his band would always feature Orange Blossom Special because that's just where you go, you know, and you get the same response 50, 100 years later of that fabulous tune. And um, so I think, you know, when I got to the Irish phase, you know, and my thing is just that wherever I am, I try and I feel the music. I eat the food. I hang out with the people. And in Ireland, I I really felt it, the the ancient tones. And so I learned a lot of Irish tunes and recorded an album called The Walls of Time that had uh, Trina O'Donnell playing harpsichord on it and uh but i remember one day i was wandering around in dublin in a bookstore looking for the ancient tones of course and uh, i was and I, I was looking for these where's the oldest book of poetry and i found one that goes back to some of the earliest uh, gaelic poetry from ireland they think it might have been from greek voyagers but they they're beautiful things you know wow like the little four line that the day the day dawns the waves roll you know the stars shine uh, in the sky. or you, you know what I mean? It's like a moment. It's like that walls of time moment. The nighttime stars are still in the sky, but the day is dawning. You know, these transition periods where, now, of course, in folklore, that those are portals. You know, the other world is present during sunset and sunrise. And Bill Monroe himself said, I have never missed a sunrise or a sunset. Really? Yeah, that's just something he bragged about. Wow! <laughs> so he knew those times. Yeah, you know what I mean. So he had the poetic mind of uh, to be able to think of the ancient tones and play them. And then in the reggae uh, collaborations I did. Uh, to me, they're just in there. You know, in those minor keys and uh, in that their approach to the bass. It's not strict like Nashville thing or how Nashville used to be and pretty much play it straight you know don't ad lib or anything like the reggae thing has got a rolling thing to it and musically speaking ladies and gentlemen I would say that is four four time with a three quarter time thing going on at the same time triplets you know and Bill's early mandolin playing had had that whole thing um, there's a, a, a tune called Sweetheart You Done Me Wrong where Bill is playing a triplet feel instead of it's and then again when we rehearsed with Bill he would never play and he'd listen to us play his songs and at the very end he would take his mandolin out and we'd play a shottish which is again (laughs) it was like that triplet thing it's so deeply in his music, but of course, as time went on and rock and roll became a predominant influence, Bill like changed. It became much more boom check, boom check, boom check. But early on, it was you know doom check, doom boom check. Doom, you know, uh, uh, Flatt and Scruggs. Uh, I'll just tell one more story. When Flatt and Scruggs joined the band, and this is part of the, the late night conversations on on the Ancient Tones with Bill, um. He took those very green, talented players, Lester and Earl, to New Orleans. And I asked him, really, how long did you stay there? He said, we stayed there two months. I didn't ask him why he took them to New Orleans. I just was so fascinated. I said... I said, well, "What? What did you hear that? What was going on down there?" He said, "Well, a man could find any kind of music that a man would, would might want." <laughs> okay, that and then some. Right? <laughs> and New Orleans, of course, has is, is always been the like the mysterious, scary, melting pot kind of thing. And uh, and I said, well, uh, "I asked him, what, what could you? What would you hear?'" And he said, "Well, you had the sock time." You had the jump time, you had the the waltz, and you had the rag time, and of course you had the slow drag. Now, if you know what a slow drag is, then you can see why Bill took a tune like in the pines, and made it so, uh, so weighty with with the rhythmic structure. But you know, he was also playing music of the countryside so his tempos were brisk and you know that's that uplifting part of bluegrass you know you're singing these very sad songs with a bright happy tempo (laughs) 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 and uh but the slow drag is actually you know it's own musical thing you know it's it's the it's the march to the graveyard blues you know Slow drag kind of thing. Uh, But they still use that term in New Orleans, and there was a famous bass player. His nickname was slow drag something, you know. Well, and then all the rest of it, you can think of it in terms of either Bill's music or Western Swing. Like Western Swing was predominantly that uh, jump time. Uh, Bill mentioned sock time is more... If, if the True Life Blues is sock time, swing time is a little different, different, and worked more into. I think Bob Wills's approach, but uh, uh, Mister Bill Monroe's knowledge of of uh, fiddle tunes is where he he would be talking about the ancient tones. He'd bring out the ancient tones in those fiddle tunes, which means, I think, giving more value to the long note. You know, and not everything being... I mean, his job was to play the pizzicato on the mandolin. But the fiddle's job was to, you know, get get that moaning tone in there. You know, Tex Logan was a person who really developed that. Um and candy too. But you know, in the end it's not all broken down into this folkloric description. It's music. Yeah. You know. And maybe that long note is only a very short note, but what Bill wanted was the timbre or tone in everything you did to be of the ancient tones.
0: Yeah. After working with Mr. Munro and and learning about bluegrass and, and, and his approach to everything. What was it like for you then to be a part of one of the the most influential and best selling bluegrass albums ever, the old in the way
2: album? Well we had internalized bluegrass by then. You know, the learning process, although we didn't know it or consider ourselves any kind of experts, least of all Jerry Garcia. But, you know, once we got Vassar in the band, that cemented our intention. And our intention, honest to goodness, was just simply to play bluegrass, you know. So whatever you hear, is us trying to do it <laughs> and doing it, because in those days, you know, most of the time you feel like you weren't doing it; you're just trying to do it, you know, because it was still very uh, precise kind of music that you had to make. But now, if you can find away recordings that are not sped up or you know de- degenerated over time through repeated listening because it's all from tape earl stanley owsley the third the acid king recorded that stuff on a nigra tape recorder he had two nigras at the at the boarding house and and two stereo nigras so it was four tracks and uh i guess they bumped it down on big ampeg tape so that there was more saturation but that's a generation loss right there so it's extraordinary quality of recordings, you know, uh, and, you know, at the time, the self-criticism, self-censorship, uh, being of a 20-something, it was five years after I was with Bill Monroe, and i already done C-Train and Earth Opera, and, uh, it's all about intention, you know, it's, it, and I think David Grisman said so in the liner notes, that, uh, Olden in the Way was just a continuation of the original Bluegrass Quest, which for us, City Billies, was, how do we make this fabulous music? (laughs) (laughs) And Garcia was right there, leading the charge. You know, it's funny, I remember the first show we did, you know, in this little kind of hippie place, this little club called the Lion Share, you know, you had to go through the gauntlet to get to the dressing room, you know, they always smoking pipes being handed to you and it's like <laughs> <laughs> I'll not remember any of the words yeah. if I do that <laughs> yeah. and uh, I remember Garcia stepped up to take his first solo and it may have been just a visual pun but he he reached down and and it turned an imaginary volume knob on his banjo. <laughs> and I thought it, maybe he was just used to the electric guitar, but it might have been, it been a joke for him. He was one of the funniest people. Really? Very, very funny. Yeah, very funny. And there's a moment in David Grisman's uh, film that his daughter made of of that era, a uh, later era, uh, called Grateful Dog. It's about uh, Grisman's collaboration with, with Jerry and uh, there's a one place where they leave the camera running while everybody goes to get coffee or something. And Jerry just sits there. He He's not going in. He's just smoking a cigarette and he's just looking around and you see, you really see Garcia. That's how he was. You know, he was like that even if people were in the room, you know, He just sort of a great presence, you know, and, and like Bill, but a different thing. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you think of the cosmicness of all of it. You know, maybe on a certain level, they they had a connection. You know, he he went east with Sandy Rothman to try out with Bill. Yeah, that's heard. he wanted what I heard. to be a bluegrass boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he chickened out. Really? Yeah. Well, culturally, it was a really different scene. Coming from the West Coast in nine, late '50s, early '60s was, you know. I remember playing uh, Sunset Park and there still were Amish people on the outskirts with their carriages and their horse-drawn, you know, carriages. (laughs) ¶¶
3: Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done, with features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS, to save 15% off your first purchase. And now, back to Walls of Time.
0: Even though Jerry chickened out on trying out for a bluegrass boy, do you think that... His words. His words. I chickened out, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that the success of the, the Old in the Way album and how it introduced so many new fans to bluegrass sort of maybe left him a little bit fulfilled on the the fact that, you know, he didn't try out for Munro's band, but he still helped spread his music to new, to
2: new audiences. And in the words of Jerry, sure, man, <laughs> <laughs> sure, man, you know, everything was more like, it, it, of course, it's a done deal. It's like, we're moving forward here. You know, in fact, uh, that's one of the reasons Olden and the Way broke up was everybody wanted to do something different. And I, I think I had a moment where, I could have become the, the band leader of Olden in the way, but uh, even I was, you know, certain members, you know, there was stuff going on that I didn't understand in, in that dynamic with people. You know, Dave went on to do dog music, you know, and I played with my brothers, and, and Jerry, you know, he got... Super involved with the Grateful Dead. They made a movie. They, you know, went to Egypt. They know. and that was like, you know, we were like the the, the the little saloon in the harbor bluegrass band. And here comes the ship, and it's like your banjo player is going on the ship. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: where do you see bluegrass music heading in the future? Everywhere. Everywhere.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you know, because you've got you've got all. All forms of bluegrass music now, and I just feel like I have something that I've inherited, and there's there's no point in being coy about it and, and trying and to jump through hoops or do tricks or anything like that. I'm just kind of what inside excited me, incited me about bluegrass in the beginning was the vocal harmonies and this strange subject matter, like Carter Stanley's songs and Bill's songs. They're so mournful, you know. I mean, people refer to bluegrass sometimes as graveyard music, but it does deal with mortality. And I, I, I either on this next record or after that, I'm I'm going to return to my own personal themes. And uh, you know, I did a record called uh, Dharma Blues, which was, uh, uh, you know, it was a sort of had bass and drums, and Jack Cassidy played bass on it from. The Jefferson Airplane and Jody Stecker played mandolin, mandola, and an Indian instrument on it. So it it kind of bridged the gap a little bit, but it's, if you think of it in any possible way, it's 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 more like rock bluegrass if you're gonna put the bluegrass thing to it. And is but in my ear it's pretty far away from bluegrass. However, you hear these tunes, I'm playing an acoustic Martin nineteen thirty seven D eighteen. Jody's playing a fretless banjo and yet there's bass and drums and all that stuff. But I've always felt from the very beginning of my interest in Buddhism that bluegrass is the perfect platform. But I couldn't figure out, you know, because most of the music that's oriented towards an Eastern viewpoint tends to be spacious, you know. uh, You know. (laughs) But when that woman told me the bluegrass is the most uplifting music and I, that was when i had the legacy band with jody and keith little you know little quartet some that just was like a reinforcement of yes of course it's uplifting that's why people like it they don't like it because people are just playing the notes you know they it lifts them up you know and yet it talks about real life issues of impermanence and the impermanence is sort of The first level of going okay this life is not forever you know the precious preciousness of a human birth you know stanley brothers little girl baby girl you know my precious writing about his daughter jean you know and um i don't know but these poets of bluegrass are moved by you know being rooted in the changing of the seasons you know and uh and a religion like, uh, or a viewpoint like a Buddhist viewpoint, originates in w- when the Buddha left the palace. You know, either metaphorically or for real, he went and lived out in the country. <laughs> and I've been to where he did his austerities, and it's it's the the ecology there is so pure. There are parrots flying from tree to tree. There's no degradation, and all around it is, you know, arid. And yet there's this little oasis where they say that that energy is, is there, you know? And I think it's something to do with, uh, you know, high on a mountaintop, you know, it, it's like that, there's that lonesomeness feeling is really the lonesomeness of pulling your, um, your sense of being alive together. And then you can come down from the mountain, but, uh, I don't see any quarrel at all with bluegrass as a, ve- a vehicle for spiritual outlook at all really it, it, it the gospel music has always been you know four part har- harmony singing we'll do a we'll do a tibetan oriented one today <laughs> <laughs>
0: you, you mentioned how you see that bluegrass deals with mortality what have you learned about your own mortality through bluegrass music
2: well it's all just uh, playing games until you reach that point in your life where you need some pay attention to your health. Um I always prided myself prided myself on playing from the heart. And they'd be, "What's wrong? Why what are you going to Jamaica for?" And I said, "Because my heart tells me to go there." But if you if you're using your heart as your vehicle, maybe your heart's going to get a little tired out of supporting the whole trip. <laughs> you know. So, you know, when but that's personal. Everybody goes through that uh, mortality, either losing someone dear to them, or facing their own mortality. I mean, I think for all of us, facing our mortality is one of the biggest things in our lives, and especially as you get older. If you do get older, you know. Uh, so uh, the songs in bluegrass, like Carter Stanley's eyes uh, and Monroe's. Uh, it's it's more of a what they call elite motif it's just more of a motif than it is like well except when the stanley sing angel of death now that's a direct confrontation yeah. <laughs> with your mortality and i think you know the gospel tunes is is you always, you always have a sense of it but you know a sense of it becomes real when when you've got to deal with you know your uh the impermanence of your own existence, which is, you know, almost too much to bear, really. You know, you can get very wound up in that and feel tremendously depressed. And I think uh, Christianity and Buddhism both give you a a way to enlarge your heart relationship to life itself, uh, kind of expand into a larger space, you know, whether you do it through, you know, the divine figure's of of buddha or jesus you know uh we're all this we're all made of the same material you know buddha nature itself is considered to be the origin of our existence and our life of activity is karma from a christian point of view it's a fallen existence like when i sing wayfaring stranger with the youth orchestra i think about those words but um I think the, the overall thing is transcendent of any religion. And bluegrass may be the most transcendent of all religions. <laughs> <laughs> Peter
0: Rowan, Episode 4 here on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. I'm Daniel Mullins here with my co-producer, uh, Mr. Ty Gilpin we got deep with Peter Rowan. Peter Rowan gets deep. Peter Rowan gets deep. We we were all over the place. I didn't, I'll be honest, Ty, I did not know what to expect when it was time to interview Mr. Rowan. He's such a uh, a complex figure. His, you can just tell by looking at his music, he puts so much thought into what he records, how he records, when he records, uh, his, his writing and his, uh, he's almost like a, roots music chameleon he can kind of do it all so i had no idea where this conversation was going to go but i knew that it was going to be great and he did not disappoint
1: yeah he's fantastic another guy who i love just to hear his voice and hear him talk and hear the reverence that he has for bluegrass music its origins its uh connections really its connections to the mystical and you get a lot of that uh, in this interview I love, again, we got these great Monroe stories. You're going to hear a lot of these Monroe stories because you uh, you can't get around that. You're talking about the person who created this music and whose template and blueprint is still followed in uh, so many ways today. Even when you got someone like Rowan who has uh, taken uh, the foundations of what he learned uh, from Monroe and bluegrass music and adapted it to so many different eclectic styles, um, I think, uh, as much as anyone, Peter Rowan has been a gateway from fans uh, for fans of other kinds of music into bluegrass. You know, his work with Old in the Way, um, his work with his own uh, projects and bands. He's always come out with music that includes um, the style of bluegrass uh, as a foundation. I think it's really great to hear his respect. You know, he's goes into the revitalization of Bluegrass, Monroe's career in the 60s. It's worked with Ralph Rensselaer, which he was there for.
0: Which For, for folks that don't realize, Ralph Renzler one of the most underheralded members of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, a non-performer who really helped when the folk revival happened uh, back in the 60s. Ralph Rinzler was the guy that made Bill Monroe and Doc Watson beloved uh, to folk fans by booking them at college campuses and at folk festivals are really key in helping uh, spread their music and their history and their story to a whole new generation of fans. Because in the 60s and 70s, the kids that were listening to Joan Baez and Bob Dylan were not necessarily the same folks that grew up listening to Monroe on the Opry. So to have a guy like Ralph Rensler that could tell... Monroe and Doc's stories and put them in front of new audiences. That's one reason that bluegrass is still uh, was able to withstand such uh, such trends like rock and roll and uh, all the shifting sands of time was for folks like Ralph Rensler that were creative in finding ways to appreciate bluegrass music and is in its historical context and place that in front of uh, new audiences. So big shout out to Ralph Rensler, one of the most pivotal, members of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame when it comes to carrying this music on to new generations.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, bluegrass during the folk revival, it all comes with the same place. It's music that is community music, participatory music. And um, I even love what Peter has to say about where the tradition of some of these songs come from. Uh, he mentions uh, Gaelic poetry and the like. Uh, of course, the keening tones. He talks about the keening tones um, often referred to as the ancient tones. Uh, which is the uh, what Bill Monroe would talk about that would um, connect him basically to a, an otherworldliness with his music, um, mining the vastness of Bill Monroe's emotional life. Uh, talk about Monroe never missing a sunrise or a sunset. You think about how connected uh, Monroe was to the world around him and how in tune he was to channeling uh, such great music, Uh yeah, it's illustrating how much Monroe is connected to other worldliness. I thought that was great.
0: You mentioned, you know, he mentioned how Monroe never missed a sunrise. Fun fact, guess what other great, I mean, I'm sure there's more than just one, but one of my favorite authors, one of those great American authors, is one who was pointed to as never missing a sunrise, would be Mr. Ernest Hemingway. And uh, ironic because the the directness with, with which Hemingway wrote and the, the simplicity uh, and also the, those tie-ins with, with nature and uh, just different struggles uh, is also interesting because munroe's songwriting can be, can be kind of similar as well in a roundabout way. The way that uh, Peter talked about Monroe and Bluegrass Music's connection with nature and sorrow and loss – such uh, such great depth in those types of elements and themes that maybe you don't find as common in other music, uh, especially at that time.
1: True. Uh, and, of course, the great story about the bus breaking down in Kentucky where uh, the birth of the song, the classic song, Walls of Time, from which we get our podcast title. Uh, I love the part um, about uh, Monroe telling Peter never to forget it And Basically, the two of them collaborating to write that song together and create such a classic. You forget that uh, some people forget that that was uh, basically a song that Monroe and Peter wrote together.
0: A fitting title for this podcast as well, I think, in addition to it being one of my favorite bluegrass songs. uh, The way that stories like this with Peter Rowan kind of take us back in time, but also push us forward in time and look at what this music has for the present day and where it's going in the future—that's one reason we picked "Walls of Time" as the title for this new bluegrass podcast. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Favorite version of "Walls of Time"?
1: I'm sure this is the original. Um, although my buddy Sav Sankrin does a really good version of it too. Got to admit. So you ask me what's my favorite version, put me on the spot. I would say uh, is the Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys live version. That—that that was my favorite one. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if Peter was singing that at the time. It might have even been Dale McCurry. I know Dale McCurry is on the cover of the album, so... I'm slipping on my bluegrass knowledge here, but I really love that live version of Walls of Time. It's when I first heard and fell in love with the song. <laughs> I got
0: I got hooked uh, when the Ancient Tones album from Ricky Skaggs came out. His version yeah, with John Cowan singing harmony is fantastic. Also great versions by uh, Emmylou Harris live at the Ryman for another great live cut. Uh, the Johnson Mountain Boys did a killer version of that as well. But lately, I, I don't know if I could pick a favorite, but lately I've been on a kick. Uh, Peter Rowan... Recut the song with Ricky singing harmony to Peter. That's pretty fantastic. I've been listening to that one a lot recently as well. So folks need to check all of the versions of Walls of Time out. They can find the song. Go to our social media page. Let us know which version is your favorite. It's tough choice. I mean, there's so many great takes on that song. It's, it starts with a great song. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of great versions of that Bluegrass classic. What? Where can folks find us on social media if they want to let us know what their ver- favorite version of that song is, Ty?
1: Walls of Time podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram walls of time pod on twitter and on our website
0: walls of time podcast.com be sure to rate review subscribe and share this podcast with a bluegrass fan that you think may enjoy hearing all these great field recorded interviews with the legends of bluegrass who's up next uh ty on walls of time
1: mr positivity danny paisley it's a great conversation
0: Danny Paisley, he won Male Vocalist of the Year in the world of bluegrass a few years ago. One of my favorite bluegrass singers. He sings with so much heart and soul. And he, you're right, he, he is. His laugh, I, the best part of the the Danny Paisley episode. Which there's a lot of highlights. Getting to hear him laugh throughout the whole thing is worth the price of admission.
1: Absolutely, you're going to hear about barroom bluegrass and. Uh, Danny is what I refer to as a pedigreed player who grew up in a bluegrass family with his fantastic father, Bob, uh, who I got to see a few times live before his passing. And you get to hear about what Danny uh, learned about life from his father and just a whole bunch of stuff. It's not a a real long episode with with Danny, uh, but it's a really great one and it's a great pick-me-up.
0: It's cram-packed with some great memories and some great stories. Uh, Danny Paisley, up next on Walls of Time, be sure to uh, rate, review, subscribe so you don't miss an episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Thanks for listening.
3: Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.